Hello and welcome to All Things Small Business, brought to you by DAU. I'm Ken Karka, DAU Small Business Learning Director. This series is offered as a continuing dialogue between government, industry, and academia on acquisition-related issues that impact small businesses who support the critical defense industrial base. Let's join today's conversation. Welcome to All Things Small Business. I'm your host, Anthony Rotolo, and this is the show where acquisition and small business meet. We bring together business owners, contract experts, policymakers, and stakeholders, and we explore the issues facing small business and acquisition professionals as they work together to overcome challenges in a government and defense context. Today, I'm joined by a special guest. We've got DAU's own Dr. Michael Santens. He's our DAU Georgetown professor. Dr. Santens is retired Army who has worked in the private sector for 15 years. Dr. Santens was a deputy comptroller for 20,000 people. And upon transitioning to the private sector, he was a CFO for an NRO prime contractor. He then transitioned to COO for two other firms spanning 10 years, which is when he became involved with things like OTAs, other transaction authorities, and SBIR or SIBR, which stands for Small Business Innovation Research, and STTR or SITR, Small Business Technology Transfer Program. We're going to focus on that latter, STTR or SITR. But first, let me just welcome Dr. Santens. Dr. Santens, welcome to All Things Small Business. Thank you very much and a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, really thrilled to explore this topic with you. May I call you Michael throughout this interview? Ah, please do. All right. Now, Michael, if you would, please just provide an overview. We've thrown out a lot of terminology, and I hope you'll, <laughs> you know, you'll expound on your experience as you go. I ran through that rather quickly. Uh, but for the audience and those who might be getting acquainted with these terms, there's SIBR and SITR. Tell us what those are, and then from there, we'll talk about their benefits. Sure. Most people understand that Small Business Innovation Research Program, because 11 agencies actually use it themselves, but only five agencies actually use the SITR or Small Business Technology Transfer Program. The good thing is you receive funding by conducting your R&D, you retain the rights for intellectual property, and you have the opportunity to obtain additional funding to continue the development of your technology. Both programs provide a unique opportunity for scientists, engineers to develop and grow a small business. We actually did it because we were able to take our technology and insert it into Afghanistan and Iraq. And by doing that, we were able to cut down our cost and the same token have good awards by doing that. So a lot of benefits to it. Uh, keeping your intellectual property must be very, very appealing um, <laughs> to the firms that engage. I understand that STTR is a narrower niche compared to SIBR. You're exactly right. So the SBR, SBIR, and the STTR actually have three different phases, and they're about the same phases, what they're going to do. And what they want to do, you do the introduction to phase one a concept, 
And then you go into phase two, which can be up to two years, and you expand on the phase one results. And then phase three really is the commercialization phase that the government is trying to drive to, and individual companies want to do that to be able to sell their technology, both to the government and to industry. Right. So this is where they're getting their ROI. They're making their profits, selling to the government and the private sector. Michael, tell us, like, what are some maybe high profile achievements? I know there are things that have been done by DARPA, for example, that are a testament to what can be done with these programs. You're exactly right, Anthony, in that we have a lot of successes with DARPA, ARPA, and, you know, they go to the stealth revolution in that doing the aircraft for F-117 Alpha, which flew successfully in 1977. And then it started doing the stealth revolution for the entire DOD and had tremendous benefits for national security. The other one is that we all use it all the time, driving now, the GPS. It was done initially in 1983 by DARPA. I used it in combat in 1988-89 and uh, for the for the positioning decision azimuth for the MLRS launchers. And then there's also for the equating the internet as we actually know it now by ARPA. It's done use for pharmaceuticals, electronics, computers, medical, metals. But those are the three significant areas that people recognize. Yeah, a little thing called the internet. Yes, that's right. <laughs> So now we know who really invented the internet. I mean, that's enormous. Those are enormous examples. And small business was involved with all of these? Uh, small businesses and universities and federally funded research centers. And we'll get into a little bit more down the road, but that's really the differentiation between Sibber and Sitter. Gotcha. Okay. So we've covered a couple of things. So we do see what's been kind of the benefit and the, the boon from these programs. You talked a little bit about how they have commonality with their three-phase approach. What are the some of the differences, if you can spotlight it? Because I, again, I understand that Sitter puts you into a smaller niche. Far less people are conversant with it. The real difference is that to do a Sitter, S-T-T-R, you have to have a small business, which is always the applicant, but you have to be teamed with a nonprofit research institution, typically a university or federal laboratory. The second difference is that the CIDR program is focusing on the transfer technology from the research institution, research institution and or the nonprofit and or university to the small business and ultimately to the marketplace through phase two and three. The small business has to be teamed with like a, an MIT or a Carnegie Mellon type of entity. And there's a focus on the transfer to, is it the commercialization again that you're describing? Yeah, the, the, the transfer quite is on the transfer of technology because in the 1960s, the federal government had all the R&D because we deal the, the uh, spaceship for Apollo and the initial moon launch. After that, it turned around and now private industries actually have more uh, research and development than the U.S. government does. So Michael, what would be like a real world example that you could profile for us that shows 
who were the players and what they produced? So Anthony, thanks for asking. My personal experience is pretty varied in that at one of my firms as COO, I partnered with Purdue University for four patents. The first one was microfluids. And that was, uh, we took the inner workings of the oil and the antifreeze and engineering fluids. And we figured out where the breakdown points were and fatigue of the metals. And we actually used that and tried to market that to Army, UPS, FedEx, and try to do it this way to, to capitalize on the microfluids. The second one was a nanotechnology to produce graphene in a clean white room. And we'll explore this a little bit later on. But remember, as a small business, we don't have access to a clean white room, but Purdue University did. So scientists have been scrutinizing graphene since 1947. Philip Wallace would do the first calculations. And then they figured out that for the next 57 years that they could actually do um, something other than just a theorist blackboard calculations. So in the 1990s, you might remember we had carbon nanotubes and we had crystalline forms of carbon, such as diamonds. They typically form in high temperatures followed by slow cooling. What we actually focused on was graphene. So I want you to think of it this way. A human hair is approximately 80,000 to 100,000 nanometers wide. In contrast, graphene is less than one nanometer. It's actually 0.345 nanometers. So one third of a nanometer. And it's an allotrope of carbon consisting of a single layer of atoms arranged in a two-dimensional honeycomb lattice nanostructure. It's essentially, it's, it's a two-dimensional crystal of atoms neatly arranged in a pattern that looks like chicken wire. Later on in 2010, Two Russian-born physicists uh, was awarded the Nobel Prize for the isolation of graphene, a crystal-like form of uh, carbon one atom thick. From there, then we actually figured out we could actually separate it into substrates, and that would allow us to explore the capabilities of graphene. Yeah, graphene is uh, something I've been I've been hearing about graphene for many many years. I didn't know that it goes back to the forties. But it sounds like it was in the uh, limbo of hypothetical stuff until more recently. I've been hearing about it more and more in this cell phone age because I think there's application there. Am I correct? Yes. What people do not realize is that graphene is stronger than steel. It's lightweight and it conducts electricity and it's very – we're actually going to use it for the space shuttle itself is what we're trying to do with uh, big sheets of graphene for satellites and space shuttle. Very interesting. Can graphene connect to communications in a way? Like if you have graphene in places, does it work as a communication device with the internet? Yes. So what we actually did, we tried to develop wafers with graphene as a substrate. So we actually could increase the uh, performance speed of the electronic electrons through the gates and speed up the uh, engine speed of computers via graphene. It's a very complicated area because it took several years for it even become measurable 
And when we first started off, it was just one centimeter by one centimeter. And we moved it to 10 centimeters. And right now, they can actually do the graphing sheets of about 28 inches wide. So about two feet wide for sheeting. So we've come a long ways in a short period of time. So it was a scaling challenge going from something that's <laughs> you can produce yes. in a microscopic way to something that has ergonomic possibility for people. It is at a scale that's practical. And remember that initially a human hair is 80,000 to 100,000 nanometers. We're talking less than one nanometer just for graphene. And you're trying to spread that out. It's very complicated. Yeah. I mean, you're at electron microscope size, right? <laughs> yes, Point. yes, yes. Yeah. So this is amazing information about graphene. But th- with this case study with Purdue, what did that look like as they began to develop it? And then again, that transfer phase. Well, Purdue was very important to us because we had the white room, the clean room in order to develop this. And we had the microscopes. We had every, We had what we needed to do. But it was a land-grant university. So it was very difficult in order to have the cost accounting in order to suffice for DOD. The Purdue University actually wanted to have good research, want to have publications, and that's what they're actually looking for to have a good, good news story. The problem we actually had was that our PI, principal investigator, uh, was very renowned physics degree from MIT a chemical degree from Harvard and a Princeton was teacher of the year and um, very good, but he was Chinese. So then we had to figure out what we could or couldn't release and do. And that was one of the hard parts we had to do. Just a national security concern. Yeah. Because remember that when we do this, we're actually, we have to do what the export control says we can or cannot do. The problem of ITAR is that in international traffic in arms regulations, is that it often conflicts with the Department of Commerce. And because of that, uh, they often have a lot of impasses in doing it. So it's very hard to do export control over some of these systems. So the export control is that desire to protect the technology. Exactly right, Anthony. So remember that ITAR is done by the Department of State, and we're trying to figure out what we can or cannot share with foreign indices. But it's often at odds with the Department of Commerce because they have different definitions. So when we're doing it, it was pretty hard to do this, had a lawyer, all the type of stuff. But it's almost like you're entering into a programming do loop and you can't get out, but you have to do it in order to be compliant because no one wants to lose their license or the business. Right, right. That's the, that's the big thing at stake for the contractors is not violating yep. these export control rules. They, they want to keep their license. Yep. So, Michael, we've talked about export controls, the need to protect this technology. Tell us about data rights. How does that work? Is it a kind of a licensing thing that is worked out between government and industry? That's a good question, Anthony, because actually it's changed a lot. In the very beginning, a decade ago, it had a rolling area of data rights and is that you have five years as long as you use your technology. Once within the five years, you renew it for another five years. It's called rolling data rights. But about two and a half years ago, we actually changed it now and we eliminated SBA, eliminated the extension or rollover provision. 
uh, in May of 2019. Now it's good for 20 years, 20 years. So because of this, then a small business knows that they'll be okay by embarking in the research and they have enough of shelf life, enough runway, it actually makes sense for them to do that. Okay, five years was a confining time frame, yep. is what you're saying. So this just makes it a more practical working relationship with the government? Yes, because why would I want to invest my R&D money as a business? Because it has to come out of GNA, a totally separate pot of money. And if, if I'm not going to have a return on it, then I'm very hesitant to invest my money in R&D. Yeah, you're clipping, you're, you're cutting that ROI opportunity short with five years, I think is what you're saying. Exactly. And you have to remember that my GNA is also bifurcated with bidding proposals as well. So I really have to be careful of my, my, my dollar expenditure because if I spend too much, I'll become non-competitive with other businesses. So Michael, I understand that Sibber and Sitter Data have three basic attributes in common. Please walk us through that. Tell us what those are. I'd be happy to, Anthony. The other three, the first one has to be recorded so the government has insight and oversight of what's being done. The second one has to be technical in nature. And the third one is that you have to have a special type of funding agreement or appropriately marked with the SBIR or SITR data right legends. It's important to, to look at it from the macro level, but also the micro level, because most firms want to protect the software source code through non-closure obligation. So they want to keep their software architecture actual source code in a patent. So for example, when I was doing the company research, I actually filed with the Library of Congress, our technical approach, redacting our appropriate source code so it could not be re-engineered. It That's also the served the proprietary a, part. Exactly. It also served a timestamp for future patents and ownership of the code I did in theory in case we're challenged later by another company. The second thing is that you have to do technical in nature. So non-technical data does not qualify as cyber data. Okay, that's very helpful. So it has to be recorded, number one, it has to be technical, and it has to be generated under those funding agreements that you just described. So who owns the data developed under an SBIR, STTR award? So traditionally, the small business consortium owns and has full right and title to the data it develops under a SIBR award. But for a SIDR award, technology transfer award, the research institution for the sitter award and research institution must prior to award sign the intellectual property agreement identifying the sharing of the rights to data. So then how is the data protected and for what length of time? So based upon IP laws for the United States government, we actually going to protect the data now for 20 years for the beginning at a time of phase one, two, or three. So because of that, it actually provides assurance to the companies that they'll be safe for 20 years. But the government has the rights to certain limited use of data, primarily evaluation of results of the award, and then they can use it for evaluation or review processes, 
and they can use it for the application and research of research or technology. But these are specified and stipulated in the SPIR policy directive and the STTR policy directives. Now, is there a constraint on the size of the company, some kind of rule? Actually, it's pretty interesting because it's changed a lot. Um, a decade ago, they decided that they're going to do some, some other stuff as far as defining what counted or did not count. What they figured out now is that the new rule for the new provision regarding the agency option to allow participation by firms that are majority owned by multiple venture capital operating companies, private equity firms, or hedge funds. So it's a big change of the traditional way. And how do they count employees? So the question is, are there differences in employee counts? And the answer is yes, because it's based upon the number of employees for each of the pay periods as preceding completed 12 calendar months. And the SBA counts all individuals as employees, including part-time and temporary employees. This is a little different than the contracting three-year average based upon revenue or employee count. So a little different is one year versus three years. And they're casting a pretty wide net for who qualifies as an employee, part-time, temporary. Yes. So, Michael, this is a really good tour and overview. It gets you into the weeds by necessity because there are some particular things. So as we kind of wind up, I want to bring back the big picture vision of this. I would just ask you just if you could summarize and restate the benefit of this Sibber Sitter set of programs. I actually like this as a COO and a CFO. The reason I liked it is that when you go to the announcements, whatever agency it is, DARPA, ARPA, or another agency, Army, Navy, Air Force, they'll give you what they actually want done. When they do that, they'll give you a dollar value. And I used to say it was $150,000 for phase one. I actually bid on $75,000 for phase one. Once I did that, I was actually in the door. I had an award. And then allow me to, in phase two, develop it for commercially. So one, provided good past performance. Second thing, I wasn't under competition because I had a good idea. And the third thing, it was a cost-effective way for us to grow our revenue at the same token, still contribute to the national defense. We were very careful of the technical data, the data rights, because it's government purpose rights generally. It's how it's done. But we actually knew that we could actually avoid unlimited rights. And by doing that, then we could actually protect our revenue and our ownership of the actual property. You know, you've kind of beat me to the punch with my next question, which is how, and that's good. That's fine. I like that you're already leaning into it. What advice do you have for companies that want to take the best advantage of these programs? We're actually growing our business, Anthony. We want to have something to actually compete with the mids and the large companies. Because remember, when you first start off a small company, that runway runs out pretty quick, whether it's 21 million, 35 million, 7 million, whatever it is. And once you run past that benchmark, then you have to compete against all the big boys. So in doing this, this allowed us to compete 
and still retain the information property for five more years. And then right. our whole idea was that we would be absorbed by another firm because we actually had the ownership. And because of that, we'd actually be a subcontractor to the big leagues. I see. Right. You'd retain that intellectual property. Now you're attractive to bigger firms that might want to scoop you up. Correct. Look, look at what's happening right now. So yesterday or the day before, Cerner was actually acquired by Oracle for $28 billion for electronic medical records. So Oracle want to get into the area. So they actually purchased Cerner for $28 billion because they actually had the know-how and the patents to do that. So everything right now is based upon IP and based upon data rights. We, the government, are incredibly behind by doing this, and we're just not as agile as we want. In fact, our time is actually running short of the Silicon Valley right now, and we're going to not do so well because of time timeliness. Yeah, in fact, there's timely articles coming out, I think, to that exact point. There's one at Breaking Defense Com headline, Silicon Valley warns the Pentagon, time is running out. Would that be speaking to what you were just alluding to? Exactly, because think about when we had the shooters, right? And we want to go into Apple and get the passcode and see what's going on with the yes. iPhone or Google, Microsoft. It's, it's too hard for the United States government now. We are a fraction of the R&D budget we used to be. And because of that, we really have to use the industry to the fullest extent we can. That means we actually be fast accurate and we need to stop all this funding you know have three different flavors of money when in fact you need to do one or two and make it happen that way yeah and i understand that's where like these other transaction authorities come in where you can quickly partner with the bleeding edge companies in silicon valley for example correct exactly right yeah. In fact, in that article I alluded to, there's a picture of Elon Musk, you know, time just uh, named him person of the year. And he's, I guess, another person who's helping the government understand that time is running out and, and we have to learn how to act fast. So if I had something to say in conclusion, I recommend that small businesses have a strategic plan for your intellectual property and how you're going to commercialize it. Because Phase one is nice. You get your foot in the door. Phase two of either program, SBIR or STTR, you're trying to commercialize it. And you can actually bypass phase three and go straight to commercialization if you want. But this is a good roadmap for you to do it and contribute to the national defense. Grow your revenue at the same token. Keep doing the programs you need to accelerate beyond your competitors. You know, the three phases really plot out how, like you said, you get your foot in the door and then you plan and build for commercial success. So very, very helpful, Michael. Again, my guest is Dr. Michael Santon. want to thank you for your time today. Any other closing thoughts we're leaving on the table? I think you've done a nice job. I appreciate the opportunity. And just for Sibber and Sitter, you have awards of up to $1 million for 24 months. You have a quarter of a million dollars for Sitter or 150000 for Sibber. So the money's there. You just have to do something that is novel. It has something with technical and recorded data. Outstanding. Dr. Michael Santon, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Thank you. This is Ken Karkoff once more. I want to thank our guests for participating in today's conversation. Your insights and perspectives will surely help our listeners. And an invitation to our listeners, if you'd like to participate as a guest in a future conversation, please reach out to me at kenneth.karkoff at dau.edu. Till next time, stay engaged and collaborate across your networks. Everyone's talents and skills are needed within the defense industrial base as we fulfill the national defense strategy together.